Welcome to the second episode of the second season of Capture Q. Today's guest is Dr. Rahim Mohammed. Dr. Mohammed is a visiting assistant professor of international studies at Center College in Kentucky. Dr. Mohammed earned his BA in political science at UBC in Canada and his MA and PhD in political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In this episode, we discuss the differences between Canadian and U.S. politics. We discuss the importance of Senator Mitch McConnell putting Kentucky on the world stage. We also throw back to the 2016 election, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, protectionism, and even trade deals. There are a lot of insights that a Canadian teaching political science in the U.S. can teach us. So I hope you enjoy the show. Today's episode is also the first that will be going up on YouTube. So give us a follow there. It's a new channel, and so be light on us. If you like what you hear, please follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, CaptureQ.com. So you are Dr. Rahim Mohammed. Um, you teach poli-sci, focusing on international studies at the Center College in Kentucky. Hmm. You you did your your undergraduate at UBC. You did poli sci, and then you went on yes. to North Carolina. You did your PhD there. Do you yes. talk about I guess how you got into political science, interested in it, and then how that led you into academia as opposed to another route? Well, it's a little. Um, I literally have a paper in front of me right now. I'm kind of cheating here, uh, but this paper is on Quebec's 1995 referendum on independence of Canada. And I think, you know, at that point, um, sort of on independence from Canada. And I think at that point I was nine years old. Um, all I remember is watching the referendum night, whether in October, I think October the 30th of 1995 and thinking, wow, this is a really big deal. Um, you know, these people on both the yes side and the no side um, are very, very passionate about that. So that's actually my first tangible, again, I'm cheating a little bit um, because I'm literally reading about the referendum right now, but that's my, my first tangible uh, memory of politics and, and my first um, uh, my first uh, the, the inclination in my mind was that politics is a big deal kind of a few big political events um, sort of in my formative years uh, sort of got me to sense politics is very very cool it's something that people get passionate about and sort of um, it sparked a, a lifelong passion for me sort of first in um, I was a staffer for a bit um, then going on to higher ed um, and, and now I teach it. But um, to answer your question, a, a few notable interactions with politics in my formative years and also um, coming from a family where we discuss politics uh, around the dinner table as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For listeners, we, we went to high school together. Um, one thing that sticks out in my memory, being kind of a, you know, a teenager with other things on their mind was when we were in a, it was a history class and you stood up and you said, you know, I know we're learning about World War One and Two. Why aren't we learning about? And then you brought up a number of other conflicts and wars, and um, that kind of struck me. I, I thought, you know, yeah, why why wouldn't we learn about those? So I guess yeah, that must have been something you learned at home, or yeah, I mean, my um, so this was this was Little Mac, and I think Little Mac did an admirable job. Um, so this was uh, was Mr. McDonald. Let's not throw Mr. McDonald under the bus. He was, uh, he was working with material. It's in the cur uh, curriculum, right? <laughs> yeah, the, provided for him by the, uh, by the provincial government, but great memory. Um, so I remember um, uh, the course was 20th century history and it was almost entirely centered around the great powers, um, sort of the United States, the quote unquote great powers, the, the United States, United Kingdom, Russia. Um, and a lot of the second half focused on the Cold War. I think there was a little bit on, on South Africa, um, but mm -hmm. definitely, uh, I don't know if there was a discourse at, at the time surrounding decolonizing, learning and sort of decentralizing, uh, sort of decentering places like the United States from, and I also remember there was, there was not any, it was weird, um, there was virtually no content on Canada either, um, which I thought was really odd for a history course being taught in Canada. Um, so, so as you know, I was a bit of a smart aleck back then, and, and maybe I was just trying to get a rise out of a little Mac, but, yeah. but in terms of uh, the way I teach things now, I've really tried to, um, one, decenter the United States, because uh, I teach in the United States, mm -hmm. and the United States is the one country in the world um, where you can be totally oblivious to the existence of other countries. Um, your popular culture comes from the United States, your music, 
comes from the United States. All the news you consume uh, comes from the United States and is centered around the United States. Um, so for me, especially teaching in the United States, it's important to teach a subject like international relations mm -hmm. or comparative politics in a way that um, that decenters uh, the U.S. Um, I think that in, when you're teaching politics, um, the subject matter you're teaching is intrinsically related to power. Um, and you have to understand how that power also permeates um, in sort of historical records, um, in what we choose to emphasize and de-emphasize um, in narratives of, let's say, 20th century history, uh, let's say, contemporary international relations. Um, so I think that was uh, me being a smart aleck, 16 or 17 year old, um, but stumbled across a very important point um, about, you know, how to go around developing a curriculum or teaching a, a subject with social importance um, and understanding that those decisions um, reflect even unintentionally um, certain power, certain dimensions of power and certain differentials of power. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And because I know you do teach about Canadian politics, you're, you know, focusing on international relations. Um, yeah. Um, so I had you over to, to talk about the, and you did a terrific job, by the way, but I, I had, um, I had Tracy um, oh, uh, um, zoom in on my class in January, and she spoke about the fentanyl um, opioid issue as it manifests in Vancouver. Um, so yeah, I definitely try to, to, to make as many comparisons as I can, but um, go on. Um, that goes to two questions I actually have. Um, let's let's move to because I I do want to learn about um, or hear about Appalachia and, and the course that you taught there. That would be interesting. Um, I don't know a lot about that, and that would be cool to get your input. Um, but go, just quickly going back to teaching about Canadian politics and and you know being within the U.S. and being in you know not New York or or California. Um, what, how would you explain, I guess, the major difference to your students between you know, obviously we don't have a president and um, like, how do you, how do you approach, I guess, the big differences between U.S. and Canadian politics? That is such a good question and <laughs> such a big question. Mm -hmm. um, so something that is always on the political agenda here in the United States and never quite finished in the United States as a political issue is healthcare. Um, so sometimes I will start when I'm teaching the politics of North America, um, I'll start with a meme with a mother and the child. Um, the child asks, mommy, what's a Canadian? And, and then uh, the mom responds, um, you know, well, son, a Canadian is an unarmed American with healthcare." Um, so we can look at sort of how those differences manifest in public policy and sort of what it says about Canada and Canadian culture um, that we've chosen a single pair um, sort of collectivistic uh, system of healthcare for all, um, what that says about what we value as a culture um, and about the United States, uh, Canada having somewhat more of a collectivistic culture versus the United States with, with more of an individualistic mm -hmm. culture. Um, and another issue, actually, now that I mentioned it, is gun ownership. Um, so sometimes when I'm teaching comparative politics, um, I will start with the United States and Canada. Um, so why is it that the United States is unique among advanced countries in the gun violence problem here in the US. Actually, The Economist, um, that's two doors down for me, he did his graduate work at Virginia Tech and he was on campus um, the day of uh, what was then the worst mass shooting in American history. Um, so I believe 38 lives were lost that, that day. Um, he was actually lecturing that day and he had to advise his students to stay in the lecture hall. Um, so just things like that and, and how um, sort of pre prevalent something like gun violence is in the United States, but that's a bit of a tangent. Uh, but so one thing I do in comparative politics is there is a really good Michael Moore movie from the early part of the 2000s. It's called Bowling for Columbine. Yeah. Um, so as you might know, Michael Moore is from Detroit. He's a huge, or he's from Flint actually. And he's a huge Michigan guy. Um, so in one scene from um, Bowling for Columbine, he literally drives um, 20 minutes down the tunnel from Detroit to Windsor, Ontario. And he quizzes Canadians on what do you think about guns? Um, so it turns out, you know, there are a ton of Canadian gun owners. There's a good, you know, there's a large sports shooting culture in Canada, um, but you don't have the same problem with gun violence. You don't have the same types of guns in, in Canada, but you don't have the same problem, generally speaking, with gun violence in Canada. Um, so I show him, uh, I show my students that clip to illustrate certain cultural differences. Mm -hmm. um, you have here in the United States creating sort of more of a 
um, almost a fear-based culture here in the U.S., uh, which creates a cycle of gun violence, which is non-existent in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, to answer your question, it's very, very fun to try to illustrate the differences between Canada and the United States. Yeah. Um, I would say those differences manifest in public policy. Um, so you can begin with the differences in public policy and then trace them back to cultural or temporal or sometimes just idiosyncratic differences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, you know, we have a parliament. Do you ever get into the breakdown of how our, you know, even how policy works, our Senate, anything like that? Is there... Yeah, so I wrote a fun article that, that I shared with you in, um, in June. It was about uh, the erstwhile Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell. Um, so Mitch McConnell, as, okay. ma yeah. as many of your listeners will know, is the senior senator from Kentucky. And Kentucky mm -hmm. is one of the poorest states in the country. Um, one of the most troubled states in the country, if you look at things wow. like cancer rates in Kentucky, rates of drug addiction, et cetera. Um, so for me, I started with the question of how is someone like Mitch McConnell even possible in the United States? Um, so how, how does someone from Kentucky um, become arguably the most powerful man in Washington? Yeah. Um, so that would be the equivalent of, I don't know, someone from Newfoundland, um, you know, becoming the most powerful man in parliament. Um, you just don't, don't see sort of smaller and more peripheral provinces in Canada um, represented quite as strongly at the federal level. Mm -hmm. um, so this the piece that I wrote, it started with Mitch McConnell, uh, but what makes Mitch McConnell important to Canadians is what he reflects. And what he reflects is the United States Senate, uh, which is an institution that represents each of the United States 50 states on an equal basis. Um, so if you're Kentucky, you have as many senators as California or New York, you know, or Illinois or any of the larger states. And actually, um, if you look at the history of the Senate, um, a number of heavyweights throughout the history of the Senate have come from small peripheral and poor states like Kentucky. Um, so another one is Robert Byrd, who was a senator for West Virginia for several decades. Um, you go on Wikipedia and you Google things named after Robert Byrd. Um, it's about a six page long list. And, and all of that is because of port he was able to bring back to districts in West Virginia from um, from Washington, D.C. And another individual that's, that's playing a very prominent role right now on the Democratic side of the aisle in the Senate is is Joe Manchin. Um, so Joe Manchin, despite being a Democrat, is very moderate. Um, I believe it's a 50 50 breakdown in the Senate right now. Um, so there are 50 Republicans. 50 senators. Um, so, so Manchin needs to be on board um, for any kind of initiative that the Democrats hope to pass. Um, so it's kind of a long, um, it's kind of a long-winded response, um, but I find that one of the institutional differences in the United States is um, there is more of, through the Senate um, and through strong bicameralism, um, there's more of a centralizing feature um, that allows states to be represented in the federal policymaking process, mm -hmm. um, where someone from Kentucky can turn on CNN and see Mitch McConnell yeah. on a fairly regular basis, wow. or you know, turn on Saturday Night Live and they're roasting Mitch McConnell, yeah. um, and you wonder why Mitch McConnell. Um, so I think I mentioned um, I was I was diplomatic about his appearance, but I think I said tortoise-like visage. Um, you know, he, he lacks a lot of the stature and charisma uh, that you would expect of a political figure of his standing. Um, but he still wins by massive margin. So I think the last election, he was up in 2020. His opponent raised $90 million. It was a record for Kentucky and maybe even the United States. Um, but Mitch still won by 20 points. Um, just because, you know, when you're in... Do you know what that? his campaign funding was like? Um, it was much lower. Um, so she was leading Amy McGrath, his opponent, his challenger. Um, so she led by a three to two margin. Um, but he still blew her out by, by 20 points. And um, you, know, you talk about it here in Kentucky. Uh, I mean, even with, you know, pe people here in Kentucky who have friends in other states, Kentucky is often the butt of jokes. You know, often they'll get, you know, whatever, inbreeding jokes or just, you know, kind of silly, whatever. Um, you know, you drink Mountain Dew, stuff like that. Um, so it means a ton for people like Kentucky um, to be able to turn on CNN and see Mitch McConnell, um, to see one of their own. Um, you know, who talks with a, with a draw, um, who says Louisville, um, you got to say Louisville, like there are zero, there are no eyes. That's, that's the first, one of the first things I learned when I moved to Kentucky is you got to say Louisville. And <laughs> the, you can't say Louisville because that's a dead giveaway. 
Um, like Toronto and Toronto. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Um, so yeah, so one, one of the institutional differences is I feel like there's the different states in the United States, um, despite the United States being a much more populous country, um, are more connected in national politics. Um, I feel like one of the things about, you know, we have a Senate, but it doesn't really matter in Canada. Um, so one of the things about Canada having, you know, an only weekly bicameral system um, is that there's not much representation of provinces on an equal basis in Ottawa. Um, and the people who run the show in federal politics, um, with some exceptions, uh, tend to hail from either Ontario or Quebec. Mm -hmm. um, so despite the fact that you, you think of the United States as a sharply divided society, and it is, you just have to go back to the capital insurrections uh, of January. Um, there's substantially more regional alienation here in Canada. Um, you have a discourse about, you know, Quebec separating from Canada, smaller but still important discourse about Wexit, um, precisely because you don't have institutions at the federal level. Um, to bring provinces into policymaking at a, on an equal basis. Um, so that's why I found, found Mitch McConnell interesting to Canada. Um, and I felt like I needed to write a article about what Canadians can learn about Mitch McConnell. Yeah, it's a, it's a great piece. I'll link to it too in, in, this, in this post. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, Kentucky and having, obviously, you know, there's a lot of just improper dialogue on what people are like, but you did mention that there are also, there's a lot of, you know, drug addiction and um, in your course, you know, I, I came to speak and sort of Nikki King, um, not Nikki Haley. <laughs> and uh, you guys, you kind of focused on the, the opioid overdose crisis. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you learned in this course or, or I guess what you, what you aim to achieve in teaching this course on Appalachia? Um, sure. So the, the opioid crisis was one of several topics. Um, so the general framing of the course is I'm technically in the international studies program mm -hmm. at, um, at Center College, despite the fact that my training is in comparative politics, but the course was called Appalachia and global, uh, global context. Um, so basically each January, um, one really cool thing that center does is we have a mini semester of three weeks um, where professors usually use that time to teach on special topics. Um, so I have a, a colleague in history who taught a course on comic books for center term. Um, I had a colleague in anthropology who taught a course on Disney, uh, Disney movies and Disney princesses for center term. Um, I have a colleague in classics who taught a course on um, sexuality in ancient Greece for center term. Um, so center term is really a time for faculty to kind of experiment. And what I wanted to do is I thought, okay, if I'm living in Kentucky for at least three years, I wanna use this time to learn about Kentucky and the geographical region that we call Appalachia. So basically the region um, surrounding the Appalachian mountain range, uh, which comprises, uh, among other states, West Virginia, Kentucky, um, Ohio, and um, several more. So parts of, I think, 13 states um, fall within this categorization of Appalachia. Um, generally speaking, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee have the strongest connection to, uh, to Appalachia. So Dolly, Dolly is our queen. Dolly Parton <laughs> is, is our everything here in Appalachia. So we have Queen Elizabeth II, in Canada and Dolly Parton, Queen Dolly in Appalachia. Um, but but kind of to get, to get back to, to my point, um, the course's title was Appalachia and Global Politics. And I wanted to start with this premise of how do we get this very poor, this very underdeveloped, uh, you know, disadvantaged area in the, within the geography of the richest country that's ever been known. Um, so you go to Appalachia, um, you know, there are a number of counties without potable water. Um, there are a number of counties without broadband, um, sort of beyond just the social issues. Um, the infrastructure mm -hmm. is completely underdeveloped. Um, and it is, um, you know, third world caliber infrastructure in, in many parts of Appalachia. Um, so I wanted to start with this puzzle of how do you get this very poor, this very underdeveloped region um, within the context of this fantastically wealthy country? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what does Appalachia have in common with other socioeconomically disadvantaged parts of the world? Um, so that, hence the, um, the global context part. 
Awesome. Um, so during the first week of classes, I had my students watch a documentary called Hillbilly. Um, so it's a documentary. Uh, it's um, basically about this young woman um, who leaves Apple. She grows up in Appalachia. Um, she leaves Appalachia for Los, Los Angeles. Um, she becomes a documentary filmmaker there. She does very well there. Um, then she goes back to Appalachia to, um, to spend time with her family, to document her family, and to document um, sort of social issues in Appalachia. And a line that stuck out of that movie for me is virtually every country in the world has its own Appalachia, um, has its own sort of hinterland, um, a region that, you know, other people in the country can look to um, and look down upon people in that region um, and feel better about themselves. Um, so here in Canada, we might say Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know the term Newfie is common parlance for some, um, but virtually every country in the world, um, you know, has not only regional disparities of wealth, um, but also regionalized marginalization, um, where it goes beyond this region is poorer than other parts of the country, but it goes on, you know, this region is talked about and documented and written about in a way that systematically marginalizes the people that live there. Um, and systematically brings down the people that live there um, in a way that that makes people that live outside of the region uh, look to that region and say, you know, at least I'm not an Appalachian, at least I'm not a Newfie, and you can go on and on and on. Um, so I'm interested in not just the issues in Appalachia, um, but sort of the broader problem of why we get these Appalachians, yeah. Um, yeah. why in virtually every country there's a region we can look to. Um, that's not only economically disadvantaged, um, but also socially, politically marginalized. Absolutely, yeah. And you bringing that up kind of uh, reminds me of just the so J.D. Vance Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. He when you know when that book came out, everybody kind of you know it was during uh, an election where people were kind of calling you know flyover country and we need to consider what these people think and feel and. We grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, which is outside of Appalachia. Um, it's outside of the, the, um, the statistical region of Appalachia, mm -hmm. um, which is um, documented by the Appalachian, Appalachian Legal, sorry, App Appalachian Regional Commission. Um, so Appalachians always mention that. So I, I sort of out, of, out of out of loyalty to Appalachians, I have to start with the caveat that uh, JD Vance ain't from here. All right, <laughs> I'm just I, I'm more interested in the idea that you know he's kind of he's celebrated for for talking about parts of america that aren't the coast um then the movie comes out and you know there's been massive social movements in that time between the book and the movie hmm. now he's kind of demonized as uh you know what have you that many people will have different opinions on him and the movie um that movie did not was not received well why do you think it is that we are moving away from you know I think this whole, who cares what white people think? Who cares what, um, you know, despite being in very, very poor places. Um, yeah, I guess if you wanna talk about that and if you've seen that or experienced that in, uh, in where you are. So in terms of sort of white poverty form, um, how that was very in vogue yeah. sort of in this sort of immediate moment exactly. following the 2016 presidential election, mm -hmm. And, um, and how, in your view, it's somehow it's some it's it's somewhat fallen out of favor. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a very good question. And um, sort of what hillbilly elegy leaves out is there's this idea of a brain drain. Um, there's an idea that anybody with ambition needs to leave Appalachia. Um, so I believe that um, J.D. Vance left for Columbus, Ohio, yeah. then went to law school at Yale. Then I think he ended up at Silicon Valley in the venture capital game. Okay. So there's this idea that people um, you know, who are ambitious um, need to get out of the region as soon as possible to, to reach their, uh, you know, to reach their potential. Um, and that's very much the narrative you get. That was in the piece with Nikki King as well, that uh, Atlantic piece is, is kind of what I'm mentioning. Yeah, but go on, sorry. But, but that's the narrative you get out of Hillbilly Elegy. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of, you know, he grows up in these downtrodden surroundings. He gets into college, he manages to leave the region. And, you know, he manages to reach his potential and find wealth and fame and so on and so forth. Um, so some of the most articulate critics of J.D. Vance 
um, have been writers based in Appalachia. Okay. And, uh, you know, so, so that's, I feel like, you know, you have this movement sort of pushing back against hillbilly elegy. Um, so one other thing hillbilly elegy did is it gave very easy answers yeah. about how Donald Trump became president. Mm -hmm. And it led a lot of more affluent white people, you know, who voted for Donald Trump in Florida, um, who voted for, you know, Donald Trump in ritzy suburbs of Michigan and Gross Point. Um, you know, the people who actually swung the election, it let those people off, off the hook. Um, you know, Kentucky has five electoral college votes. West Virginia has four electoral college votes. Yeah. Um, the outcome of uh, the election in Kentucky and West Virginia had absolutely nothing to do with Trump being president or Clinton being president. Um, yeah. You know, these states were non-factors. Um, the, the candidates barely uh, campaigned in any of these states because they were non-factors. Um, yet in the aftermath of both the publication of Hillbilly Elegy and the presidential election, you know, you had no fewer than a dozen profiles of, you know, welcome to Trump country you know, Harlan County, Kentucky, you know, welcome to Trump country, West Virginia. Um, so I think by sort of painting white folks in these areas as reactionary Trump voters, mm -hmm. um, that provided an easy answer to the phenomenon that actually led Donald Trump to the White House. So actually there was a really good article about this a few years ago in the Atlantic as well. Um, the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates is one of the United States most important um, writers on, on race and, and social issues. Um, the article was called uh, America's First White President. Um, how basically, you know, every, every president before Barack Obama was white. Um, you know, the default was white. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama changed that template. Mm -hmm. um, you have to read the election of Donald Trump as a reaction to the fact that a black man was president for eight years. Um, so I think by, by, you know, constructing Appalachia as sort of these white, reactionary, bitter, um, you know, Trumpites that are going to consistently vote against their economic interests. Um, I think what you did there is you let a, let a ton of other white folk off the hook. Um, so Trump won in every single category mm -hmm. among white voters, mm -hmm. um, income, education, et cetera, um, whether they were in unions, whether they were not unions. Um, Trump won in every single category among white voters. Um, so I think you, you let a lot of white people off the hook mm -hmm. and you're able to background the role that race played in the 2016 election. Um, if, you know, you construct Appalachia as this kind of Trump, um, you know, if you attribute the result of the election to Appalachia, it, I think it obviates the need to have a more uncomfortable conversation mm -hmm. about what actually happened. In 2016. Yeah. What I think is interesting, just looking at the 2016 election, is so many people who supported Bernie Sanders and coming from the radical left, where, you know, we were anti war. Hillary Clinton was considered a war hawk and she had a track record of, you know, that, that was not progressive and that wasn't leftist. So I, I think, um, you know, well, what you're saying is obviously very true. I think a lot of the disillusionment within the left at, you know, the, this woman uh, definitely added to, I mean, you look at, there's Bernie Sanders, Trump voters, which is just, you know, they said I would have voted either or, they were just kind of smashed the system. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've ever looked into that or if there are any extreme, you know, progressives that were more Bernie, Bernie uh, supporters, if you know anything about that. Yeah. So you mentioned the war issue, and I think another, um, so it's interesting, you can think of politics as, we tend to think of it as linear, mm -hmm. but you can think of it as more of a shoehorn. Of course. And sort of we think of Bernie as radical left mm -hmm. and Trump as radical right, mm -hmm. um, but there were a number of areas where they kind of almost met one another. So you mentioned the anti-war thing. Um, one thing I would bring up that I think was even more significant is how each of them viewed trade. Um, so both of them would be protectionist. Um, so actually, I show my students um, NAFTA debates from 1993 when I'm talking about the North American Free Trade Agreement. Yeah. Um, Bernie Sanders at this point is the one independent in Congress. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he says that NAFTA is going to decimate American manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't just NAFTA. It was NAFTA coupled with the rise of China. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, you can draw a straight line between the loss of manufacturing employment um, in the states that actually, that actually swung the election. Um, so the states that actually swung the election 
were the former Rust Belt, um, sort of Michigan, Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, you know, you know, steel towns, um, auto, auto towns. These were, were the areas that actually swung the election. Uh, and you can, you know, you can draw a straight line between, you know, there's a very clear correlation. Um, even Nobel Prize winning economist uh, Paul Krugman admitted this. There's a clear correlation between the United States entering into a number of free trade agreements in the late 1990s and the early 2000s and a collapse in manufacturing employment. It's not the only thing that's going on. Um, there are other factors at play, such as automation, um, but Trump and Bernie, um, I think, makes make similar arguments and correct arguments um, that trade in particular mm-hmm. and the United States pursuing free trade, mm-hmm. it has exacerbated gaps between people with certain types of skill sets yeah. and people with other skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and manufacturing in particular in the United States, um, you're talking about millions upon millions of jobs lost. And, um, you know, you go to Pennsylvania, you go to Michigan, um, it is entirely common to have entire entire towns built around factories, mm-hmm. um, you know, where, where most of the parents will work in the factories. Um, the entire social life um, at one point was patronized or, or sponsored by the factory. Um, so the loss of those factory towns as well, you can draw a very close um, you can draw a very clear connection between that and a number of trade agreements that the United States pursued. Getting back to Hillary Clinton, um, one of Hillary Clinton's most notable initiatives of Secretary of State as Secretary of State under Barack Obama was she was the individual that on behalf of the United States negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership, yeah. um, which had it gone through would have been our largest trade agreement. And that, was, I mean, that was just detested among the left within Canada that everybody was moving against that, you know, there were so many social movements to try and educate people on what the TPP was about. And to me, that was a very leftist, you know, movement against it. So. Yeah, also, you know, kind of, you have that sort of commonality between Bernie and Trump. Mm-hmm. And I think that protectionist stance, if you look again, at the places that actually swung the election, the places that actually mattered. Um, you know, we're talking about 50,000 voters mm-hmm. across three states, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Um, you know, you can read Hillbilly Elegy all you want, but according to the numbers, that was what mattered. Um, you know, that was the difference between President Trump and President Clinton. Um, and and there, there absolutely, there was no way that the trade discourse, the protectionist discourse did not play a role there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's where... Um, despite, you know, us thinking of Trump as radical right and Bernie as radical left, um, that's where they come together. They overlap. And Absolutely. I think that was a very attractive argument for a number of swing voters mm-hmm. living in those former Rust Belt states. Of course. Yeah. And it, it is interesting, too, just the idea of, I mean, it, you know, the left is very anti-capitalist. And obviously the, the criticisms for me are late stage neoliberal capitalism versus just, you know, mom and pop shops and, and you know, not being a socialist country. Um, when, when you start to actually meet people who, you know, they struggle to pay their bills, that is truly devastating. And I, I think that the left focuses too much, you know, we look at COVID, this, you know, it's, is it health or capitalism? But, you know, you do have to, at a certain point, consider people need to pay their bills. People need to, you know, be able to feed their kids and, and, and the stress that comes out of that, it takes away a lot of empathy that they can have for other people if they're, you know, struggling just to make ends meet. And I I think that the, the, the radical left is too focused on being anti-capitalist and being too, you know, not really looking at, you know, how do all of these things really affect people's lives? And you recently you had work published in, or it wasn't recent, but in the Independent Review, the piece called Unfinished Business, Reflections on Canada's Economic Transformation and the Work Ahead. <laughs> oh, wow, that's taking uh, me back to, I think, five years ago. Yeah. Um, so that was the first thing I was able to, to get published. Um, I was able to get published while I was still in grad school. Um, so actually, I've got to start on a bit of a sad note. Um, so this started as a seminar paper that I wrote for Bill Keach at Duke University. Um, so Bill Keach at this point was an absolutely towering figure in political economy. I think it might have been either his, his second to last or maybe his last year of teaching. Um, so he retired shortly after I took the course, but I was thankfully able to make it a seminar paper. 
um, you know, then submit it. And then it, the, the whole process maybe took a year and a half, two years. Um, okay. Publishing anything in academia is a chore, um, mm-hmm. but I was able to get it as a seminar paper, then make a few revisions and, and get it as a journal submission, um, then incorporate more revisions and finally get it published. Um, but I just found out actually earlier this week um, that Bill Keach has passed away. Um, oh. So you'll see my acknowledgments. I acknowledge Bill Keach first. Oh. Um, so, so hearing about that article kind of triggers the, um, the close relationship that he and I forged and he's just a terrific mentor. Um, so I got to start with that. Um, mm-hmm. But I was writing this, um, so I believe it was published in 2017. Um, but I think when I was writing it, Justin Trudeau had just become prime minister. I'm actually going to look at it now because I've got it somewhere in my bookshelf and it's been Perfect. forever. So <laughs> this was when like Hamilton was impossible to get into. Okay. Um, they took five symposium contributors. Um, they flew them to New York City and got them tickets to Hamilton and then had them all write essays. So unfortunately, I did not make the cut for that. I'm really upset. So this is right when I, like nobody could get into Hamilton. This is right when it was a cultural phenomenon. Um, but w- um, so yeah, basically talk about, um, so kind of the unfinished business refers to things, um, things we did in the 1990s to shore up our finances and make Canada a more competitive uh, global jurisdiction. Um, so as I'm sure you know, in the early part of the 1990s, uh, Canada was in this vicious cycle of having one of the world's largest debt to GDP ratios um, and having to deal with increasing interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a massive debt crisis in Canada in the early 1990s um, that successive governments were able to beat down. Um, so first the Mulroney government in introducing the goods and services tax, tax a flat rate, um, consumption tax, and then the sort of Chrétien government um, that came in later on in the 1990s um, that under finance minister Paul Martin um, sort of pared down federal finances, uh, bought federal, federal finances afloat, et cetera. So you and I were very, very young, but in the early part of the 1990s, uh, Americans were calling the Canadian dollar the Canadian peso. Um, there were concerns that the International Monetary Fund would have to come in and bail out Canada uh, much like it needed to bail out Greece um, after the global financial crisis. Um, so kind of the unfinished part is did all this stuff in the 1990s and sort of the work, work ahead are sort of what Canada needs to do now um, to become truly globally competitive and to do things like um, um, to do things like staunch the brain drain, um, to do things like compete in areas like high tech. Uh, so it's a very, very political economy focused piece. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any, you know, kind of what's happened since then, I guess, um, you know, with the Canadian dollar versus the US dollar, we're still, you know, not doing too well, um, getting better. But yeah, have you seen anything kind of shift since you wrote that paper? So when I was writing the paper, um, Canada was still in a commodity cycle, it was softening. Okay. Um, but commodities prices were still high. China was still writing. Ch- China was still rising. Um, so I remember being, being back in high school and I'm sure you do as well. So we, we graduated in 2004. Um, the general discourse there is, you know, you're an idiot to go to college or university. Um, just go to Fort McMurray, uh, you know, go to Fort McMurray, Alberta. You know, you could be a tool pusher and make $150,000 within a year. You know, you could, you could work in the service industry and make $85,000, $90,000 within a year. Um, you know, why are you sinking all these time and resources into getting this education um, mm-hmm. when you're not going to see any return on that investment for, you know, a decade or longer, um, pick up a trade, move to Fort McMurray. Um, I just thought it was very interesting being in Canada. That was very much the discourse. And it seems like there was this diminished, you're, sorry? Obviously, you know, being, being female, that was not what I heard. It was kind of the opposite is go to school, go to school. And then now everybody has master's degrees and they're fighting for 30K jobs <laughs> in, from, you know, my end of things, but yeah, but go no, on. But I believe you and I had some colleagues that, that in high school that went out to Fort Mac, you know, that went to Northern British Columbia. Yeah, and... it's definitely a male, you know, that, that was a way to make money and they did, you know, do well, but, uh, you know, is it a life you want? Just hard mm-hmm. to run, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's kind of, um, so that was the context in which I, I was writing the piece. I uh, was looking a bit at kind of resource curves. 
um, and how Canada being such a resource dependent and resource driven mm-hmm. economy diminishes an education premium somewhat. Um, so I was at a point with, you know, a degree from the United States, you know, a reasonably um, well-known institution in the United States that has a reasonably strong brand here in the United States. It would have been difficult for me to go back to Canada um, because I wouldn't be able to trade on, on that, that degree in Canada to the same extent that I can here in the United States. Okay. Um, not that that's, you know, I, I think there is kind of a obsession with academic prestige and kind of brand name places in the U.S. So that kind of has its own set of pitfalls as well. Um, but I was writing this in Canada um, when we were still in that commodity cycle. Um, and it seemed as though that commodity cycle dampened an educational premium. Um, obviously, now you have a complete collapse of um, commodities and particularly oil. Um, so, you know, Fort McMurray, Alberta um, has gone from riding high to really, really struggling. And um, I think oil will rebound and commodities will rebound. Um, but it's not going to be anywhere near what it was in the early part of the 2000s. I think the rise of China um, was quite literally a once in a lifetime event. Um, so in Canada, that resource sector has died down a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the discourse surrounding young people and jobs has changed. Um, it's substantially less trade centric. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting, too, to think, I mean, Alberta, it was kind of, you know, our Texas and people, they did make you know, pretty good salaries there. And now that is, you know, it's on the decline. So people are rightfully, you know, quite angry or confused or, or feeling a little bit, uh, economies don't always stay and then it's hard for people to accept when it, when it goes down, right? So there's a lot of anger towards the West Coast for environmental activism and you, you get all those. Uh, the yeah, so actually my, my last year in British Columbia was 2013. Um, so I, I just come back from Chapel Hill. I was working on the provincial election campaign in 2013. And what really struck me about that campaign is to a large extent, it hinged on a pipeline. Yeah. Um, so the then leader of the NDP, so literally there was a headline in the province um, that showed the picture of the then leader of the NDP, Adrian Dix. And the caption was, this man could kick a dog mm-hmm. and still become premier. Um, but kind of what turned the tide against him um, was that he played coy about what he was going to do about that pipeline. I believe it was Kinder Morgan. Mm-hmm. Um, on Earth Day in Kamloops, he announced that he was against the pipeline. Um, and that began the decline uh, of the NDP in the polls. Um, and ultimately, uh, Christy Clark's BC Liberals, um, they were able to get reelected with a stronger majority um, when everyone wrote them off for debt. Um, everyone said, you know, they're going to end up with 10, 15 seats if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to me how much a pipeline mm-hmm. back in the early 2010s could shift the entire complexion of a provincial election. Yeah. And I just don't think we have that discourse around nat- natural resources today. Um, I think, you know, there are going to be some, some jobs associated with natural resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're good, good jobs, um, but they're going to be sort of transitory you know, three, four years long, we, we don't, and I think, I think it's, it's, it's a good thing. Here in Canada, we don't view natural resources mm-hmm. and re- resource development as the silver bullet for jobs mm-hmm. uh, that we did back in the early 2010s. Yeah, and everyone's realizing, I mean, there's just been so much education and social movement around, you know, just protecting biodiversity and all of that. People are more educated to that. And I think even if you were more inclined to say these are you know, good jobs and let's go into them, you can see the dialogue about shifting away from them. So it makes sense that they're, yeah, they're not uh, as, as contested. People aren't fighting because people believe that those jobs should stay and they will stay. And, you know, if, if you only do this, you know, support the pipeline, then we'll continue to have these jobs, but we just know that's not uh, happening anymore. So, yeah, interesting. Um, I guess, We've talked a lot about kind of, you know, the last decade, which is really interesting. I didn't intend that, but it, it's interesting. Um, do you have anything, I guess, you want to add? Maybe ch- talk a little bit about teaching during COVID. Um, you said it was a really difficult year, if you want to touch on that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when, when you're in higher ed, I think there's always a trade-off between rigor. Um, I'm at a place with a very strong brand in Kentucky. It's very well known in the region. Um, it's known as being an academically rigorous place. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, you have, you know, with students and especially students that are electing to go remote, um, they, they had a choice 
here at center. Um, they could either be in person with masks on or they could be remote. Um, but you have students here that have been remote for 15 months, um, that have been learning remotely from you know, March of 2020 through to May of 2021. And for me, I decided I really had to foreground wellness. Um, so I you know, would, would um, talk about my cat, memes <laughs> were very prominent in my teaching this semester. Um, so I would have them do online qu quizzes. And the last question for each quiz would be, how are you feeling? Um, and options will be, an option would be, um, you know, that, that meme of the, the cartoon dog that's in the burning house yeah. and the dog's like, oh, this is fine. Yeah. And he's a crying Michael Jordan. So I'd give them these like colorful options to, to let me know how they were feeling. Um, so yeah, it's, it's um, I've had to do it. So this teaching in COVID, um, I think one thing that I've had to do is I've had to, I've had to prioritize my students' well-being above all else. And I've learned empathy and I've learned that, um, you know, obviously academic rigor is important, um, but also having students enjoy coming to class, um, you know, having students feel like they're connected to a campus community um, is, is equally important. So I, 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 it's, it's something where I feel like I've needed to be more attuned to my student wellness because you've had, you know, you know it's, 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 I think for everybody, but especially people who are in, you know, either K to 12 education or post-secondary education right now, it's a really, really difficult time and these are not normal times. Mm -hmm. um, so I've had to really find ways uh, to foreground and prioritize wellness. Um, so we call it, um, we love our buzzwords in higher ed, but we call it trauma-informed teaching. Yeah, um, yeah. So how do you make your teaching trauma-informed? How do you not scrimp on rigor, um, but also teach around the reality that we all have reduced bandwidth right now? Mm -hmm. And there are things in our lives right now that are more important than school. That's really nice and refreshing to hear because I feel like, I mean, we are, I like that our generation is the, you know, we, we kind of, we understood how chronic stress does affect the brain and the body. And, and I think it's, it's good to see in universities, there's so many more options for, you know, mental health. And it's nice to see that a teacher also is, is uh, caring about that, so. You have to wear a lot of hats over the past 15 months. Yeah. As a teacher, as a counselor, as a bit of a YouTuber, um, <laughs> the, the, the IT guy, yeah, or a moderator. Guy, mean guy on Twitter. <laughs> Got a 1% raise though, so that, that's that's what's up. Good for you, congratulations. Yeah, well, that should be coming in today, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, we all got 1% bonuses. Amazing, well, I mean, and it, it definitely, the fact that everybody still continue going to school despite not yeah. being in classes and they, you know, it's, it's good to know. So teaching in Kentucky, um, now that you mention it, it wasn't just the pandemic. And we can think of three overlapping pandemics that are going on. Um, so obviously COVID, um, you could look at the opioid, uh, America's other epidemic, yeah. um, but teaching in Kentucky has been especially challenging. Uh, about a quarter of my students come from the Metro Louisville, Kentucky area. Um, so as you know, Louisville, is where Breonna Taylor um, was murdered by four um, Louisville Metropolitan Police Department officers. Um, so for my students that are from Louisville, uh, that were in Louisville in the summer, where protests were breaking out in Louisville, and Louisville's really become, you know, one of the three or more, four more important cities in America for the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. um, so having students deal with that trauma as well, um, and center would be, um, have a good, good, good number of black students as well. Uh, but having, having students deal with the, the racial trauma um, and just how central Louisville is um, to this entire national uh, you know, discourse surrounding police brutality and, and, and Black Lives Matter, um, that's been yet another issue to nav navigate. So I feel like if anything, um, this year's really taught me empathy and it's really taught me, you know, you can push um, but also be aware that there are things going on in your student's life outside of school. And sometimes I myself um, have found like just for my own wellness, um, communicating my own vulnerability to students um, has been very therapeutic to me. It's gonna look, you know, I haven't seen my Canada, my family in Canada, you know, since uh, the Christmas, Christmas of 2019. Right. Um, you know, I, I have the, these terrible splitting Zoom headaches. Uh, so I think one thing that teaching in, the pandemic has done is it's made me recognize my own humanity and limitations 
and be somewhat more understanding of limitations than other people. And, and, and there are things that I wonder about. Um, I wonder sort of going forward, should I dock students' grades for being absent? Um, you know, do they sometimes need time away from the classroom? Is that okay? Um, you know, should I dock my students' grade for late, grades for late work? Um, so it's really led me to, to, to foreground wellness a little bit more mm-hmm. and think about ways I can maintain academic rigor. Um, you know, we want you to do well here. We want you to feel like you've learned a lot here. We want you to go and get a good job so you can donate money here um, when, you, you know, when you're, you're in your career. Um, but we also want you to feel like we care. And I don't know if I found that balance. Um, I feel like there's a fine balance between supporting your students and spoon feeding your students. Yeah. And you know, college is an area where you should learn to become an adult and you should learn to become more self-sufficient. And professors are not babysitters. Um, so I don't know if I found that balance, but teaching during the pandemic has got me thinking about areas um, where I can foreground wellness more in, in my teaching okay. and areas to potentially take beyond the pandemic. And it is really important because school is really about preparing people to be able to find work and do well in those jobs. It's good to recognize that because sometimes you're not missing a class because, you know, you're off at the mall with your friends. It's, you're just, you know, in need of some sleep or, or, you know, to talk to your grandma on the phone or something like that. Well, I appreciate your time and good luck with everything. I mean, you've got the summer now, so are you teaching courses in the summer? No, summer? no, I'm, I'm doing a, uh, doing a Spanish immersion program starting in June. And I'm trying to get another article published. So I'm, I'm, I've got to revise and resubmit that hopefully I'm going to get to by the end of the month. So awesome. well, it's a tough, uh, staying away from a classroom. Yeah, good for you. Well, thank you so much. And we'll, uh, we'll be in touch.